Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. In the final episode of our first season, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox sits down with District of Columbia Attorney General and NAG President-elect Carl Racine. Well, welcome to another edition of The People's Lawyer here at the National Association of Attorneys General. I'm Attorney General Tim Fox, the Attorney General of Montana, and it gives me great pleasure to have my great colleague and friend, uh, Carl Racine, the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., with me today. How are you there, General Racine? Tim, I'm doing well, and I hope you and your family are safe, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time to do this. It's been a lot of fun to visit with so many of our colleagues about the important work they do. And as I mentioned, we call this uh, the people's lawyer. And if there ever was a people's lawyer, a champion of the little person, uh, the disenfranchised, the disadvantaged, it would be Attorney General Carl Racine. Uh, but, you know, in many respects, while uh, the work we do is very often very similar across the nation as attorneys general, uh, your situation is a little bit unique. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about the firsts. There are several firsts that come with Attorney General Carl Racine in your biography. You, you're a first generation citizen. Uh, you were the first African-American managing partner of a top 100 American law firm, and you were the District of Columbia's first elected attorney general. So I'd, I'd really love to hear your perspective on breaking these barriers and how the experience, both professionally and personally, uh, that you've had have impacted your work as attorney general. Thank you so much, Tim. I've got to tell you that I've never been asked that question. And I've been interviewed, um, you know, many, many, many times along the way. Um, the first first that you mentioned is the first in my family uh, to be an American citizen. Uh, so I was born uh, in Haiti, as were my mother, my father, and my sister. And we grew up uh, at a time in Haiti where there was a um, despotic leader, authoritarian dictator, uh, who was in the business of crushing human rights, human rights that we cherish in the United States, like our First Amendment rights to protest. When I was six months old, my family made the decision that they were not going to raise their children in an environment where their kids would have to make the choice of being silent or going along uh, with a despotic regime, that instead they would move to the United States. So my parents left me when I was six months old with my sister and grandparents, and then we would later join them three years later. My father and mother desperately wanted my sister and I to become American citizens because of the same principles and ideals, Tim, that really led you to have your stellar presidential initiative focused on civility and leadership, and of course, your love for the enduring principles of the United States. Um, so that's that first part, why I became a United States citizen. It's really because my parents wanted more uh, for their kids, uh, and I do love this country. 
Second first was becoming the first managing partner of an AMLAW grossing revenue law firm. So the firm made a ton of money. I was happy and pleased and, you know, I guess privileged more than anything else uh, to be the first uh, managing partner. You know, I tell you what that meant to me uh, was that there I was standing on the shoulders of many people of color and women who probably had all the right stuff to be managing partners at their firms, but may not have had successful routes at their firms, successful opportunities to compete. Um, so for me, that wasn't uh, an honor that I personally cherished. It's one that caused me to have great gratitude uh, for those who came before me. I will tell you, it also caused me to take my job very seriously because I did not want to just be the first and only. I wanted to make sure that women, people of color, folks who just don't ordinarily make it in a law firm environment knew that they could make it. So I worked, uh, honestly, my tail off uh, to ensure that the track record would be clear uh, that we were successful. Um, and so that's what animated uh, that uh, law firm experience. I have to tell you, it was quite stressful um, because I carried that with me literally every single day. Um, becoming the first elected attorney general of the District of Columbia, my hometown, um, you know, was just uh, an honor, you know, beyond any, frankly, that I've received professionally, because you know how it is when people entrust you uh, to be their representative. Uh, there, honestly, I wanted to um, work in a way that elevated the legal work of our office um, to a national level such that the people of the District of Columbia would get used to the concept of having a public office viewed as amongst the very best in the country. Additionally, my focus, as you noted, was on using the law to help um, our most vulnerable residents here in the District of Columbia, and in a real way, be what this show is called, the people's lawyer. Well, that's that, that's incredibly impactful, uh, Carl. And, you know, each of our situations is a little different, as I mentioned, but many of the things we do are the same. You know, uh, I'm elected. Uh, I have to answer to the legislature for my budget. Uh, sometimes that can be uh, somewhat of a challenge, uh, particularly if they don't always agree with some of the things that we may do here. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the particular challenges you have as the the first elected attorney general in the District of Columbia. I'm sure you're working with the mayor, the city council, and other leaders of the state. What are those challenges that are perhaps maybe somewhat unique to you as attorney general in the District of Columbia? Sure. I think uh, the first challenge was really being the first elected independent attorney general of the District of Columbia. The DC government had an attorney general, but that attorney general was appointed by the mayor and really functioned as the mayor's lawyer. And so the amount of work and the level of work that was focused on people um, was not so much. Uh, so it was really important to build that out. My first big political squabble was with the mayor of the District of Columbia. She didn't particularly like the idea of there being another elected independent person 
and that person being the attorney general. And so, Tim, in the first literally 10 weeks of my, uh, my tenure, the mayor proposed legislation to terminate our status as independent. And she proposed that the relationship between the mayor and the AG would be one of principal to agent. I would be her agent and she would tell me what to do. So we had to fight that (laughs) uh, immediately or else this whole independent elected attorney general thing would have been a lot different. Uh, And uh, not being really political or not having that experience, you know, our team had the fight for our life and we won. And that was a a very, very important victory early on. And and I got to tell you, it wasn't the great work of the attorney general. Um, Certainly, my colleagues helped a lot. But really, it was the residents of the District of Columbia who had voted by a margin of 83% for an independent elected attorney general. They came out in droves and showed outrage at the notion that the mayor would sua sponte decide to end our independence. So that was a struggle. We might talk a little further about the struggles of being in the District of Columbia or opportunities. DC, of course, is not a state. uh, And we oftentimes uh, have to do battle with Congress, the federal United States attorneys, uh, and other uh, aspects that perhaps other state AG don't have to worry about. Yeah, that, that is unique. Uh, I've already learned much more. I mean, I, I call you a good friend and colleague for all these years, and I've, I've learned quite a bit uh, just here today that I didn't know. Well, so, yeah, you're, you're the attorney general, not of a state, but of one of the nation's largest cities and arguably one of the nation's most important cities, right? The, the home of uh, Congress and the president and the federal government. Uh, could you tell us, talk a little bit about some of the unique issues that your office focuses on that other state attorneys general might not? Uh, sure. So uh, first, let me just say the District of Columbia is, uh, has over 700,000 residents, more residents than uh, three other states. The District of Columbia pays more taxes per capita than any other state. Those are D.C. residents paying those taxes. And then as a whole, we pay more taxes than 22 other states, yet we do not have voting representation before the Congress. That means that we don't have a say as to whether we go to war. We don't have a say as to who the next Supreme Court justice might be. Uh, And so D.C. folks tend to have a chip on their shoulder. And what that means from time to time for the attorney general is that when the will of the people moves forward, Uh, For example, in the 90s, the District of Columbia did what many states uh, sought to do to reduce the um, pandemic of HIV AIDS. We moved to have uh, free needle exchange. Well, the Congress decided that they didn't like that. And so they preempted the will of the people as expressed through the legislation for free needle exchange and stopped, prevented the District of Columbia from having such a program for 10 years. That actually resulted, if you look at a graph, in many, many deaths. Uh, 
it was it was pointed out that the lead individuals, a congressman at the time, his last name was Barr, out of Georgia, who didn't want D.C. to have that program, actually supported the program for his home state. And so it's just outrageous um, that the District of Columbia and the, its wonderful residents cannot pass a law without looking over their shoulder at the real possibility that one congressperson or one senator might find an objection and put a hold on that legislation. Um, so, um, you know, we, uh, whether it's reasonable gun control in the District of Columbia, and, you know, f- folks can have disagreement about that. Um, we have to be careful because Congress can veto that. Whether it's moving towards a medical marijuana regime, uh, it's not our say that matters per se. Congress has to kind of okay that. Uh, we've got to be ready to persuade and advocate in different ways than other states have to. Well, I remember, uh, Carl, just recently when Congress passed the CARES Act and they gave each state, uh, what was it? It was uh, $1.25 billion. Right. Every state got $1.25 billion. As you mentioned, there's more people in Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, than several other states who got that. But they gave how much to the district? They gave they gave the District of Columbia uh, $500 million um, because uh, the Senate and the president uh, determined that for purposes of the CARES Act, D.C. was a territory. So unlike Puerto Rico, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Northern Mariana Islands, who don't pay federal taxes, D.C. pays federal taxes. I told you how much we pay. We got shortchanged. And let me tell you, Tim, uh, I know you're a great listener. You care about equity and justice. And I was proud to make the first phone call on that issue to you. And I asked you, Tim, whether you would join me in writing a letter through the NAG process to support a full allotment of $1.25 billion to the district. And you did. And that caused another 10 Republicans to join in that letter. And uh, so 37 states joined and supported more money for the District of Columbia. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm really grateful. We're still looking for that $750 billion. Uh, we're hopeful that, uh, you know, a new administration might see fit to, to square us up. Yeah, well, I was pleased and proud to join you on that, Carl. And I know that uh, 36, 35 other attorneys general were, were pleased and proud to join you as well. So, you know, I, I have the Highway Patrol, the Forensic Science Lab, the Law Enforcement Academy and, and other uh, uh, agencies in Montana. Uh, but I don't do things like uh, landlord tenant law, <laughs> child support. Tell us a little bit about that work that your office does. You know, it's uh, to me, it's where the rubber meets the road. Uh, and it's an incredible opportunity for our lawyers to really help regular people, vulnerable people. Um, and so in the District of Columbia, there is an affordable housing crisis. That means that People who are not making a lot of money cannot afford to live here anymore. 
Now, what's complicating that situation is that you've got wealthy developers and wealthy landlords who seek to buy up the remaining properties in the District of Columbia. Many of those remaining properties are buildings where folks who don't have a lot of means, poor, lower middle class folks, live in those buildings. Now, here's the game they play, Tim. They buy the buildings, and then all of a sudden, they stop providing services. So those tenants in those buildings live in mold-infested, rat-infested, vermin-infested buildings. And eventually, what happens? The people who can leave, leave, because they want to take care of their kids, their grandmas, and the like. So the folks who cannot leave are now living in those conditions with another factor, a whole bunch of vacant units near them. So what do the landlords do? They leave those vacant units wide open. So criminal activity starts to taking place. And that, of course, causes more people to leave those buildings. And the goal of those landlords and some of those wealthy developers is that all those tenants will leave. They can then renovate the building, jack up the prices, and recruit an entire new crew of wealthier people to become their tenants. In the District of Columbia, a city that has the most intense displacement in the country, what that means is that increasingly poor and in DC, poverty and race is closely related. Poor, black, and brown is essentially being ushered out of town. So we said, no, we're going to start filing suit and shutting these slum lords down. And that's what we've done. I'm particularly proud of one case where we shut this slum lord down so hard that in the settlement agreement that resulted in each tenant getting about $11,000 and having the right to remain in a renovated building, that slumlord agreed to not do business in the District of Columbia for seven years. So we use the law to help people who need help. That's great. At our essence, I think that's similar for all of us, but that's very unique in the attorney general world uh, to have someone who's enforcing wage laws, uh, child support payments, and of course, landlord tenant laws. So, you know, we all take pride in the nation's capital, uh, your home, uh, the Was Washington DC. And so in essence, the work that you do for, you know, the, the people of the district are, is also for the rest of us. That's how I view it, right? I think that's right. Um, you know, look, uh, if you're, if the seat of government, the nation's capital, um, you know, is not a place of freedom and opportunity consistent with what America is all about, then it shows the paradox of America in its most important location. Um, so we work for the people of the District of Columbia. I do want to emphasize one point that native Washingtonians all, always um, really say, and that is we love the monument, we love the Capitol, we love the museums. But get away from those places for a moment and come visit the residents of the District of Columbia. There are so many fabulous neighborhoods 
mm-hmm. you know, eclectic areas, each with its own character and great food uh, that I can't wait to uh, take you out to uh, a, a spot that's not a, a classic DC lobbyist steakhouse next time I see you. Well, I'm looking forward to that for sure, Carl. So, but we also, you know, we have a lot in common. Uh, you have, uh, you know, caused your office to join uh, multi-state investigations, multi-state lawsuits, uh, where we join with one another as attorneys general. Uh, that's something that, you know, we all work on, right? And and in that regard, can you think of some of the the uh, multi-state actions that you've been a part of that you're particularly proud of? Absolutely. I mean, I think we've, uh, any matter that concerns consumers uh, and the welfare of consumers is incredibly important. And literally just about every month, state's attorney general are working together on a bipartisan basis to protect our consumers' rights their privacy, especially in a digital, uh, you know, marketplace where literally all of our privacy is for sale every minute of the day. People know who you're writing, who you're talking to, where you are physically. Uh, And it's a great thing to be able to work with smart and passionate uh, and fair-minded men and women in our room, whether they're Democrat or republic. And I think the work we've done on the opioids, um, you know, it continues, of course, but resolutions are near. And those resolutions are going to be incredibly impactful because they'll focus in all of their remedies on getting resources to the individuals and areas that have been the hardest hit. Our place, the National Association of Attorney General, the role of the AG is such a special place. And I got to take my hat off to you. I would take my headpiece off if I could uh, for you know your initiative, Tim, and reminding us that just because we come from different parties or different parts of the country, uh, there's no reason for us to be disagreeable. In fact, there's every reason for us to have a better understanding of where we come from, because we know when we have an open heart and open mind, we realize that we're just about the same. Well, that, that's so true. I, I guess I count myself, uh, you and me, as twin sons of a different mother. Uh, you know, you from uh, Haiti, me from a little town called Hardin, Montana. Love and it. So much that we can agree on, Carl, and have agreed on. So. I appreciate those sentiments. So we're in the midst of a pandemic, right? Um, cities in across our country have been hit really hard. Montana's been hit really hard. Can you share with us some of the things that your office has done relative to COVID-19? Sure. Uh, you know, first, rather internally, I'll tell you that uh, fortunately, uh, we um, you know, had invested in IT uh, big time in the prior four years. Uh, and so we were in good position to be able to go virtual uh, 85% in three days. Um, and, um, and so I'm really proud of uh, the IT team and the management team um, for that. And of course, we really focused on DC residents. And as you know, Tim, even in hard times, um, the fraudsters are out. 
They're always out there looking to separate mom, dad, grandmom, granddad, uh, brother, sister, and just resident from their money. And so we ramped up our efforts to ensure that district residents weren't uh, the, the victims of price gouging. Uh, we just brought a very significant lawsuit against one of the largest um, oil and gas suppliers in the District of Columbia uh, for seeking to profit. Now, get this, to the tune of 143% uh, during COVID-19. Now, they've denied the allegations, um, but we think our evidence is pretty strong, and I look forward uh, to uh, taking them uh, uh, to court and holding them to account. Where I think we've been most effective on COVID-19 um, is in educating our residents of the District of Columbia about, you know, the basics in order to stay safe. So we really ramped up our efforts to get out to areas of the District of Columbia pockets where, honestly, the message doesn't necessarily get to every day. Um, and we took PPE, some PPE, thankfully, that some of the companies um, that play in the AG space donated to us, Costco, Home Depot, um, Target, and the like. And so we really wanted to be a partner with the district residents to help keep them safe. Last thing I'll say on COVID-19 is that DC residents overwhelmingly are very, very compliant with the guidance. And so in D.C., you will see literally 95% of D.C. residents going outside with a mask on or literally at the ready. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, has held us in reasonably good stead, even as the pandemic disproportionately impacts our poor, blacker, and browner communities. Well, that's that's great work, Carl. Well, you've talked a little bit about how the District of Columbia is unique in, in relation to the states. Uh, I think they call it taxation without representation. <laughs> it seems to be a, a theme from the history of America, right? Tea, Boston Tea Party, absolutely. I, I know every time we have a meeting in Washington, D.C., <laughs> you're on post, uh, you get to welcome us and you always mention us. Give us your welcome speech. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like if uh, I don't have one of our colleagues say, thanks, I was anticipating that you were going to say that again. <laughs> I've not done my job. Um, all I ask my colleagues to consider is whether it is in fact fair to tax residents of a jurisdiction a lot of money and not allow them to have a say in regards to the Congress, and the Senate. And I think that overwhelmingly in private moments, uh, I'd say that 75% of my colleagues have said, man, that is totally unfair. And I think President Trump, um, he said it right and said it clearly, as sometimes he actually does. He said the reason why D.C. doesn't have representation in the House of Representatives or in the Senate is because the Republicans would have to be fools to allow for two more Democratic senators. Thank you for telling the truth. <laughs> I got to tell you, I think Montana 
should have two senators, whether they're Democrat or Republican. Same for Texas, same for Idaho, and the same should be true for the District of Columbia. You know, uh, Carl, one of the great things that we, some of us uh, get to do, um, and I'm grateful for having the opportunity is to lead the National Association of Attorneys General, which has been around since 1907. They're responsible for taking, helping take down the monopoly of Standard Oil of Ohio. They're responsible for the master settlement agreement having to do with tobacco in 1998 uh, and so many other things. Uh, and as you mentioned, my, my uh, presidential initiative has been uh, transformational leadership and civility where we've focused on relationships. We've looked for those things that we have in common. Uh, we've respected one another's uh, disagreements um, and we've come together to, to do the great work that this association has been known for for many years. Uh, I will soon be passing the gavel on to Attorney General Carl Racine, who will, I know, ably lead the National Association of Attorneys General in the coming year. Can you tell us a little bit about what you hope to achieve in your term as the association's president? Thanks, Tim. Uh, so uh, my presidential initiative, and I've got large shoes to fill, not only because you're six foot six and I'm six foot one, <laughs> but because of you know, the transformational aspect of your presidential initiative. The idea of focusing on what leadership is and what it isn't, and how leaders can actually work together, shoulder to shoulder, in a manner that understands each other's differences and allows people to disagree in a professional way. Well, building off of your initiative, my initiative is going to be focused on combating hate. It's called the people versus hate. Um, hate is obviously an outrageous emotion and feeling. When weaponized, it is most dangerous to civilization. And sadly, in our history, our great American history, one that was not born perfect, uh, nor is perfect today, hate has reared its ugly head in ways in which I think we don't fully appreciate. Whether it is the exiling of Native Americans, really largely due to, to their refusal to be enslaved, or whether it is the importation of the African in order to be enslaved. Hate came into play because hate was the justification for the dehumanization of the other group. We're seeing hate unfold in extraordinary ways today. And I know that you've had the pleasure of traveling to Israel, uh, just as I have. And you have been to Holocaust museums, both here in the States as well as Israel. You may have been to the Children's Holocaust Museum in Israel. And you may have felt like I did, literally frozen in shock 
needing an embrace in order to continue through that museum. And what you find is that people only can do those atrocious things to people when they have dehumanized them in such a way that they have permitted each other to levy hate on them. And so my initiative is going to probe deeply into hate, the genesis of it, the psychology of it, its impact, as well as the opportunity we have to proceed in a way that respects human life. You know, the DNA evidence, you might take that in different ways, but the DNA evidence is extraordinary. What it shows is that no matter your color, your creed, your race, your height, we are about 99.9999997 the same. And so these artificial means, usually tied to immutable physical characteristics, calling people monsters, are often used to do things that human beings should not be able to do to each other. So I hope to uh, move the room in a way where the people defeat hate. And I'm sure you will. And I'm looking forward to your presidential initiative. I'm hoping to stay connected with uh, the AG world. I I wanted to mention uh, years ago, our youngest daughter, Caroline, I asked her where she would like to go on a father-daughter trip. She said, I'd like to go to our nation's capital. And I said, what would you like to do when we go? She was 10 years old. Mm. What would you like to do when we go to the nation's capital? She said, I'd like to stand where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. uh, stood at the Lincoln Memorial and recite his speech. I have a dream. Mm. I I was blown away. I said, okay, what do you want to do next? I'll go to the Holocaust Museum. And I don't want to go through the watered down kids side. I want to go through the adult side and learn why people would do such hateful things. I said, okay, what else would you like to do? She said, I'd like to find some mission work in the District of Columbia where we can go help out people who could use some assistance. So we went to the DC soup kitchen Mm. and we we packed up lunches and snacks and uh, helped distribute those around your great city. Uh, So yes, there's a lot of disparity. Uh, There's still unfortunate discrimination and bias. And who better to lead uh, efforts to rectify that than the National Association of Attorneys General? And who better to lead the National Association than Attorney General Carl Racine? Carl, thank you for being with us here on The People's Lawyer. I look forward to seeing all of those things that you will do in the future, uh, not just for your constituents, but for mine and all of America. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tim. Let me say that it doesn't surprise me that Ms. Caroline, at the tender age of 10, would reach back and cite great human beings like MLK want to visit places of great horror and remembrance because she was she was taught well 
And my friend, you have led well. So don't be a stranger. And we'll see you in 2021. It's a deal. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.